MRAP snack. There are only two things that are proven to improve outcomes in cardiac arrest, early defibrillation and high quality compressions. You've all heard this before. Every lecture I've ever gone to on cardiac arrest mentions this. That's it. High quality compressions, early defibrillation. Everything else we talk about in cardiac arrest management is more hypothetical. There isn't really good data to drive us to do it. And I think sometimes that statement can come across as a bit fatalistic. But instead, I think what it really should have us focus on are the things that we can't compromise on. No matter what else you are doing, you have to make sure that early defibrillation and high-quality compressions are part of your care. At the same time, we of course would welcome new interventions that show a benefit, as well as modifications to compressions and defibrillation that can improve outcomes. And that brings us to the article that we're going to review, which is Defibrillation Strategies for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation. This was by Cheskis and colleagues, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, November 2022. This study is also known as the DOS-VF trial, and it's gotten a lot of attention. There's been a lot of discussion on the medical education blogs, and we're going to cover it a little bit here, especially now that we've had a couple of months to really pour through this article to really see what all the experts are thinking about this, and also hear from Sheldon Cheskis himself, the lead author. The article looks to improve outcomes around the edges of cardiac arrest, specifically in those with refractory ventricular fibrillation, also thought of as ventricular fibrillation or VF storm. The authors did a cluster randomized trial among six Canadian medic groups, and the groups did a crossover to the alternate strategy as well. They took patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who had refractory ventricular fibrillation, and they defined that as patients who had an initial rhythm of either VF or pulseless VT, and they were still in that rhythm after three standard defibrillation attempts. Standard defibrillation was performed with the pads in the anterolateral position. If the patients met that criteria, they were then randomized to either continue down the route of anterolateral defibrillation, switch to AP position defibrillation, otherwise known as the vector change arm, or they got a second set of pads in the AP position and underwent dual sequential defibrillation on the next attempt. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge, and there were a number of secondary outcomes, including survival with good neurologic outcome. The research group sought to enroll 930 patients, 310 in each arm, but the study was stopped early due to the COVID pandemic, and they only enrolled 405 patients. Looking at that 405 patients split into those three groups, the researchers found that survival to discharge was higher in the dual sequence group, about 30.4%, versus 13% in the standard arm. When we looked at the vector change group, they found that survival was also better, about 21.7% versus again 13% in the arm that did the continued anterolateral defibrillation. Additionally, the dual sequence strategy was also associated with better chance of good neurologic outcome, although the vector change arm was not. So bottom line with all of this is that it was better to switch either to dual sequence or to vector change after three unsuccessful shocks with the standard approach for refractory ventricular fibrillation. Clearly, this sounds really good, 30% versus about 13%, a huge benefit, 17% favoring the dual sequence group. That's a number needed to treat of around six, meaning that for every six patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation where you switch to dual sequence, one more patient will have a survival to discharge. Of course, no study is perfect, and there are some limitations here. This was an unblinded study, and that might introduce some bias. And the study was stopped early. 
And stopping early tends to overestimate the benefits of the intervention. So possibly dual sequence really didn't have a 17% absolute benefit. It wasn't a number needed to treat of six. It might've been considerably lower than that. We don't know the answer to that question. Despite those limitations, this is a really well done study on a subject that's really hard to get good studies on. We know it's hard to do a study on cardiac arrest patients, very hard specifically looking at those with refractory ventricular fibrillation, which is not your run-of-the-mill standard cardiac arrest patient that we see. Clearly, we need to see more data to really know if the benefit is as large as we see in this study, if it's going to be to a smaller degree. But in the meantime, we also have to consider what do we do with this information? I'll be honest that this study doesn't actually change much for me because I've already adopted dual sequence defibrillation in this specific group of patients. But if you haven't gone over that, then this really could change the way you manage that subset of patients, those with refractory ventricular fibrillation. If I have a patient with ventricular fibrillation, along with everything else I'm doing, I'm going to be slapping on a second set of pads after the second shock so that we're ready to do dual sequence at shock number three. That's a little bit earlier than what Cheskis and his group did in the DOSE-VF trial. They were actually looking at doing dual sequence after shock number three, but I am typically doing shock two, applying second set of pads, and then on shock number three, it's going to be dual sequence. Most of the time, my first set of pads is in the anterolateral position, so the second set is going to be placed anteroposterior. And because this requires a little bit of patient movement, it's something that you actually want to train in advance with your teams to make sure it's a smooth transition, and you want to minimize the compression pauses. Again, the last thing we want to do is to stop the compressions for prolonged periods of time while we're applying a second set of pads when we know that good high-quality compressions is one of the few things that can actually benefit this group of patients. Jess Mason put together a nice HD video all the way back in 2016 on how to apply that second set of pads. What if you're in a situation where you don't have a second defibrillator? which is going to be pretty frequent in the pre-hospital scenario, unless a second ambulance is dispatched to that cardiac arrest. And even in some hospitals, you may only have one defib. If I've done three consecutive unsuccessful shocks with that standard alignment, either anterolateral or anteroposterior, on my next defibrillation, I'm going to do a vector change. So I'm going to take those pads, I'm going to change them to a different position, and then I'm going to administer the next shock. Although I will be honest that I've never actually worked in a hospital that didn't have a second defibrillator, but I do think that vector change is a great option in the field or if you don't have a second device. I think it's also important for us to note which patients we're doing this with. If the patient had a prolonged resuscitation in the field with five, six, seven, or even more shocks, they've already gotten four plus rounds of epi, I doubt there's going to be any benefit to dual sequence defibrillation. And Cheskis has said the same thing. The patients had a prolonged resuscitation. It's unlikely that this is going to be a win. This is really to be applied after that third shock. And in my scenario, I'm usually doing it after the second, but based on the data after the third shock, which means the main place for me to do this is when there's an in-emergency department or in-hospital arrest. The idea of dual sequence defibrillation has been around for a bit. And one concern that folks have is that you could fry your defibrillator by using two defibrillators simultaneously or in sequence. Cheskis has addressed this. He said, it's not really an issue. They didn't see any of these occurrences in their particular study. And if you look at the figures in the paper, you'll notice that the pads aren't touching each other. They're close. Those two anterior pads are close, but they're not touching. And that might be important for making sure that you don't fry one of your devices. I honestly don't think we need to worry very much about destroying a defibrillator unit. And most of the companies have said, 
this is probably okay to do. As mentioned, dual sequence is only one part of the management in VF Storm. Susie Demister and Amol dove into this topic back in August 2021. And actually, Zach Shiner sat down with Sheldon Cheskis talking about dual sequence defibrillation back in 2020. You should definitely check out those segments. It gives a lot of information about this approach. At this point, I think the place that we stand is that we have enough data, enough information to say this is something you could consider adding in those patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation if you've had consecutive or three consecutive unsuccessful shocks with a standard approach. That's all for the February snack. Remember to stay safe and we'll see you all soon.